Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29. Thank you, James. Thank you to our singers and our musicians this morning. We are coming down the home stretch of our series through the book of Hebrews. We started this book on the first Sunday of January, and we have just four sermons left to wrap it up. It is my prayer that through this series, we have learned one paramount truth, and that is that Jesus is better. One writer, excuse me, one writer puts it this way, Jesus is better than the angels, He's better than the prophets. He's better than Moses. His priesthood is better than Aaron's. His new covenant is better than the old covenant that we could never fulfill. His blood is better than the blood of bulls and goats. In every way and at every turn, Jesus is better. If you agree with that, say amen. Amen. Now, I'd like to take a moment. Let's review just a little bit what we've covered in recent weeks. As we near the end of this book, the author emphasizes to the Hebrews the need to persevere in their pursuit of Jesus. Commentators surmise that the Hebrews are beginning to face some persecution and they're growing spiritually weary. Some of the Hebrews are perhaps thinking about dropping out of the faith altogether. And so in chapter 11, the author gives the Hebrews some examples from the Old Testament of heroes of the faith, people whose life they can emulate, people who are inspiring. And then following that up, chapter 12 portrays the Christian journey as this grand race of faith that we're all running. And as we run, there's this great cloud of witnesses cheering us on, the heroes of our faith mentioned in chapter 11. But as for us, we've got our eyes on Jesus. We're running to him. And even though we get tired and even though our hands dangle and our knees grow weak, as it says in verse 12, we keep running. Why? Because what waits for us at the finish line Eternity with Jesus in heaven is worth all the pain and all the effort that we go through in this world. Then moving on, last week we looked at a passage that told us about two mountains that serve as bookends of sorts for the Christian race. First was Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. We said that this is where our Christian journey begins. Sinai is where we learn how deficient we are in keeping God's law what great sinners we are, how desperately we need a Savior. We talked about how before we can be saved, we first have to know that we're lost, that we are sinners in need of salvation. And then the second mountain that we learned about was Mount Zion, that heavenly city, the kingdom of God. This is where our journey ends if we know Christ. And what a beautiful mountain it is, the home of our heavenly Father, the home of our Savior, Jesus Christ his bride, the church, and even the holy angels. All of these things, the writer of Hebrews communicates to his readers so that they will keep going, so that they'll not give up. These are largely passages of encouragement that we've read in recent weeks. However, in today's passage, the author's approach changes just a little bit. As you may recall from earlier in this series, there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Passages that take on a rather stern tone. And today's text is the last of those. Most of you are familiar with the expression, the carrot and the stick. 
Instead of dangling the carrot of heaven in front of his readers, as he has done up to this point, the author is now going to prod them with the stick, with the rod of God's holiness. If the message last week was, Mount Zion awaits, heaven is in front of you, keep running, the message this week is God is holy. And one day, he will punish sin and he will destroy this world. Flee the wrath to come. Keep running. It's a little different style of motivation, but one that we need to hear nevertheless. With that being said, today we'll look at four traits of God's holiness. Four traits to keep in mind as we run our life's race. Four traits that should cause us to fear God, to revere him, and to stay faithful to him until we cross the finish line. So let's begin reading, and we'll learn the first trait of a holy God in chapter 12 and verse 25. Here's what it says. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. Here is trait number one of a holy God. God must not be refused. The writer of Hebrews gives his readers a clear warning here. Not to refuse the God who speaks. We'll talk more about how he speaks here in just a moment. But the main point is this. God grants every person the liberty to either worship him, acknowledging him as Lord of their life, or to refuse him, rejecting him as Lord of their life. Ultimately, you and I are accountable to God for what we do with this liberty. We see this in passages such as Joshua 24. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We see it in passages such as Hebrews chapter 3, earlier in this book, where it says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Indeed, all throughout Scripture, the Bible implores us in various words and ways, do not refuse the Lord your God. Tragically, the pages of Scripture are full of people who did exactly that. One such example is referenced in verse 25, where it says that those who refused God's voice on earth did not escape. Well, who's it talking about there? Well, going along with the previous verses that we looked at last Sunday, this is a reference to the Israelites who were present at Mount Sinai when God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. The book of Deuteronomy tells us that from where the people were, at the bottom of Mount Sinai, they could actually hear the audible voice of God articulating the Ten Commandments. If you remember, rather than listening to that voice and receiving it, in verse 19, they actually begged for it to stop. They didn't want to hear it. That same generation went forward from Mount Sinai and rebelled and murmured against the Lord. And finally, when they came to the cusp of the promised land and the Lord told them to go in, they refused. They disobeyed God and they would not enter. And because of that, the scripture says that all but two of that generation, Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. Their children got to go in and their grandchildren, but not them. This is what verse 25 refers to when it says, they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth. It's talking about that generation of Israelites that eventually died in the wilderness. 
You know, a lot of times we're guilty of saying, those rebellious Israelites, I can't believe that they refused the voice of God. I would never do that. Well, be careful. We sometimes have a lot more in common with the Israelites than what we'd like to admit. In this case, verse 25 warns us that like the ancient Israelites, we too will not escape if we refuse the voice of God. Now, we don't audibly hear his voice as the Israelites did at Sinai, but we do hear his voice from heaven, as verse 25 says. How do we hear the voice of God from heaven? Well, today we hear the voice of God through the Holy Scriptures. The Bible is completely powerful and sufficient to communicate to us God's will for any situation, for any scenario that we face in this life. Oftentimes we say, boy, I just wish God would just tell me what to do. He already has. It's right here in in this divine book. Now, don't misunderstand. That does not mean that we take a fortune cookie approach to the Bible, right? We don't break the Bible open and pull out our fortune and it tells us what to do. We don't ask the Bible what color of shirt we should wear or what job we should take or what person we should marry and then flip it open to a random page and expect an answer. That's not what we mean when we say that God speaks to us through Holy Scripture. What we mean is that if we take in God's Word on a daily basis and hide it in our heart and memorize it and meditate upon it to the point that it becomes entwined into the very fabric of our being, its wisdom and principles will guide us through life and will help us make decisions. And God will speak to our heart through his inspired word. Make no mistake, we serve a God who speaks. He still speaks to us today just as powerfully and clearly as he ever has, but he does it through his Holy Spirit, through his revealed word. The question is not, does God speak today? The question is, will we refuse his voice or will we submit? Because the voice of God, first and foremost, calls us to repent of our sin and to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And for those who refuse God's voice, for those who reject his son, this text says that there will be no escape. A holy God must not be refused. Let's keep reading. The author continues to speak now about the voice of God. Look at verse 26. It says, Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Trait number two is that God will destroy the present world. When verse 26 talks about God's voice shaking the earth, Once again, in context, that's a reference to Mount Sinai. It's talking about when the audible voice of God came down and the mountain was smoking and shaking and and all of those unbelievable events taking place. However, the author then quotes from the Old Testament book of Haggai saying that there is coming a day in the future when God will not only shake the earth, but will also shake the heavens. In other words, he's going to shake the entire cosmos all of creation. What day, what event is this talking about? Well, it's a day that scripture calls elsewhere the great and awesome day of the Lord. Some translations say the great and terrible day of the Lord. It is the day of Christ's return. 
Several prophetic passages in Scripture depict the day of the Lord as a day of darkness, a day of cataclysmic geological events, earthquakes, and entire land masses, islands, and mountains being moved out of place. And also it depicts it as a day of cosmic signs and wonders in the heavens above, signs in the stars and moon and planets. For example, consider the following passages that describe the day of the Lord. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Joel chapter 2, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Revelation 6 describes this day this way. It says, I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. Then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Man, some powerful stuff. Why does the author of Hebrews bring this up? Why does he talk about the day of the Lord? Why does he feel it important to remind his readers that this day is coming? He does so to motivate them. He wants them to stay in the Christian race. He wants them to persevere. He wants them to remember that they serve a righteous God who one day in his holy wrath will destroy everything of this world including those who have refused his voice and rejected his son. As you can probably tell, the author of Hebrews is not too concerned about positive reinforcement in this particular passage. At this point, he's not really dangling the carrot any longer. Rather, he issues a stern warning to the Hebrews. Be sure that you don't refuse God, lest you face his wrath on the day of judgment lest you be among those described in Revelation 6, crying out to the rocks and saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Let me ask you, are you ready for the day of the Lord? Have you repented of your sin? Are you trusting in Jesus and in him alone for your salvation? Because that day is coming sooner than any of us think. Please don't leave here this morning without knowing that you're ready to meet the Lord. The alternative, as described in verse 26, is not good. On that great day when God shakes the earth and the heavens to their core, and the mountain and the islands move and the stars fall from the sky, on that day you need to know where you stand. You need to know that you're ready to meet your maker. Let's continue reading. Verse 26 seems kind of dark. Verse 27 and 28 will be an encouragement to those who know Jesus. Here's what they say. 
Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. The third trait of a holy God is that God will preserve his kingdom for his people. First of all, verse 27 tells us that the aforementioned prophecy of Haggai, that God will once more shake not only the earth, but the heavens. This prophecy refers specifically to those things it says that are made. In other words, those things that are created. In other words, anything that is physical will be shaken on the day of the Lord. Not only the things that God made, the mountains, the sun, the moon, the stars, but also the things that man has made. The pyramids of Egypt, the Great Wall of China, the Taj Mahal, the Colosseum, the skyscrapers of our modern cities, all of these things will be brought to dust on the great and awesome day of the Lord. They will all be removed from their place. That's what verse 27 tells us. In other words, they'll be destroyed. Never again to be erected, never again to be remembered. However, verse 27 goes on to say that things which cannot be shaken may remain. You know, physical things, things made out of sticks and stones, those things can be shaken, right? Those things can be destroyed. It happens all the time. Earthquakes and fires and floods and tornadoes come and destroy in a matter of minutes what took generations to build. That's why we must not put our faith in material things. But you know what can't be shaken? Spiritual things. That's what verse 28 means when it says, we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. No matter what happens to the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of God can never be shaken. Furthermore, Jesus said, the treasures we store there cannot be taken. It is an eternal kingdom that knows no end. And here's the good news. If we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are citizens of that kingdom. And nothing, nothing can ever separate us from the love of Christ and nothing can ever take away our heavenly reward. God will preserve his kingdom for his people. Nothing can take our inheritance in Jesus Christ. And isn't that good to know? The stock market can crash and fall and take everything we own here on earth. It can't take our reward in heaven. We must always remember, well, let me back up just a little bit. I think it's also important to point out what this knowledge should produce in us. This knowledge that we're part of an unshakable kingdom, it should not produce pride. It should not produce self-righteousness. But rather, according to verse 28, it should produce grace. Ephesians 2 says it is by grace that we are saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The only reason that any of us in this room right now are Christians, the only reason any of us in this room have the hope of heaven, have the hope of an unshakable kingdom to which we belong, is because of the grace of God. Had God not opened our eyes and softened our heart to the truth of the gospel, we would be forever lost in our sin. And so the point is, as we have been recipients of God's grace, we must also extend 
God's grace to others. Let us be people of grace that we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear as he deserves. All right, there's one more trait of a holy God that we see in this passage. We find it in verse 29 and simply says this, for our God is a consuming fire. Fire in scripture represents holiness. Fire in scripture represents purity. And certainly those qualities describe God. However, fire also signifies God's wrath and his judgment against sin. It's the latter meaning that is most in play here in verse 29. By saying that our God is a consuming fire, the author communicates to his readers that our God is a jealous God who will not tolerate sin and will not compete with idols. He demands to be recognized as Lord. And those who refuse to recognize him as such, those who reject Jesus Christ, will be dealt with severely by a righteous God. They will be consumed by the fire of his holiness. You see, sometimes I think we have an incomplete picture of God. We often speak of a God who softly and tenderly calls us to him. A God who is full of grace and mercy. A God who is patient and gentle with sinners. A friend of sinners. And he is those things, to be sure. But we have to recognize that's not all he is. He is also a God who demands to be worshipped and demands to be obeyed. He is not a benevolent grandfather in the clouds, nor is he a sky fairy that grants us wishes when we're in trouble, nor a genie that grants us wishes. He is the God of Mount Sinai. He is a consuming fire. He is an all-powerful and all-holy God. How should we respond to such a God? Well, we already read it in verse 28. We respond with reverence, and we respond with godly fear. It should scare us to sin against God. It should frighten us to knowingly rebel against him. It should terrify us to refuse and reject his only son, the one that he gave for our salvation. God holds our earthly life and holds our eternity in his hands. Every breath that we take is a gift of his grace. May we in turn extend to him the reverence and the respect and the worship that he is due. As we come near the end of our time together, let me ask you a question. Specifically those of you who are not yet Christians. How long will you refuse him who speaks? How long will you test his grace? Do you not know that our God is a consuming fire? That he could snatch you from this earth anytime he likes and subject you to eternity in the fires of hell and be perfectly just and righteous in doing so? And yet, because he is full of grace and mercy, he has brought you here today to hear this message that you might turn from your sin and receive the salvation that he freely offers to all who call upon the name of Jesus. Don't you think that it's time you stopped refusing?
Don't you think that it's time you stopped resisting? Don't you think it's time that you surrendered to him? In just a moment, we're going to have a song of response. And if you're here today and you're ready to surrender control of your life to the Lord Jesus, I'm going to be standing here at the front. And I would ask you to walk to me and say, Josh, I'm ready to be a Christian. I'm ready to surrender to the Lord. I'm done refusing him. I'm ready to accept him. I'd be happy to pray with you and and lead you in a prayer of commitment of your life. If you're here today and you have any other public decision that you need to make, perhaps you've given your life to the Lord, but you've never given testimony of that through baptism. Or perhaps you're here today and the Lord's been uh, leading you to officially unite with this church in membership. You can do that at this time as well. You can come and pray here at the altar. Whatever God would have you to do today, whatever the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, we want you to be obedient to that. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have had together in your word. And Lord, I know just for myself, I think we're, I'm so used to just hearing you speak of your mercy and your grace upon sinners that when I read a passage like this that is more stern, it kind of takes me aback. But God, we need to hear this too. You are holy. You are just. You demand our worship. And God, if there's anyone here today that has never given their life over to you, who has never turned from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they would do this this very day. Lord, have your way in this time of response this morning. May your spirit move at will. May we be obedient to what he calls us to do. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.